Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. For today's topic, which is L1A, L1Bs, and multinational executive or managers, I have with me two of our brilliant Murthy Law Firm attorneys who will be panelists to discuss this topic with you today. I have Alyssa Klein, who is in our non-immigrant department, H1s, L1s, and other non-immigrant categories, and Joel Yanovich, who does special projects, including uh, H1s, L1s, and other uh, issues, basically a lot of the complex issues that we deal with. So we're going to discuss not just the non-immigrant category, which is the L1A, L1B, but also we want to discuss with you the multinational executive or manager employees with the EB1C filing, which is a permanent residence option. There are a lot of nuances, complexities, and intricacies that we will not be able to cover and completely touch upon because for that you would need several hours to really delve into it. And we realize that you are keeping aside a valuable 30 to 40 minutes of in the middle of your day to participate for our monthly teleconference series. So we will provide you a general overview, get into a little bit of the nuances, touch upon them very briefly, maybe raise the issues, uh, and hopefully, if you ever have any issues, you have any questions you want to hire, you know the best law firm in the world to hire for that purpose right here at the Multi Law Firm, and we can guide you or consult with you to figure out the details. So Alyssa, the L1 is the non-immigrant classification for intra-company transferees. Can you share with us what are the overview in terms of the basic requirements for the L1? And, add, uh, and Joel, you can jump in as well. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Sheila. Um, there are three basic requirements to be eligible for an L-1, and the first one we'll discuss is about the uh, qualifying relationship between the foreign organization and the U.S. organization. So essentially there has to be a qualifying organization between the two parties. And this qualifying organization is defined broadly and includes parent-subsidiary relationships, um, branch offices, or even um, joint ownership where you would demonstrate, say, majority stock ownership or control. However, uh, companies must be able to show this relationship through corporate documents such as stock certificates and operating agreement, uh, etc., which would show percentage of ownership, as in shares, or control of the companies. Um, both the U.S. company and the company abroad must also be actively doing business. Sounds great. And Joel, what are the time frames involved? Well, the employee that is working abroad will have to have worked for at least one year within the past three years, either in an executive position, a managerial position, or what's known as specialized knowledge capacity, which we'll discuss in more detail in a moment. Um, and something else to keep in mind is that the time spent in the U.S. during that one year of work abroad agreement, for example, if you enter for a business meeting or what have you, that generally won't interrupt the one year requirement. However, the employee generally must possess the full year, the full 365 days of work outside the U.S. before becoming eligible for the L1 classification. That, that's generally what we would recommend. Okay. Uh, and, and also, as a point of clarification, the employee must be coming to work, obviously, as a manager, an executive, or that's for the L1A, or in the specialized knowledge capacity for the L1B. Um, uh, so... So, Alyssa, does USCIS distinguish between a manager and an executive? 
Yeah, they absolutely do. Even though they would both be L1A, uh, there are different criteria for each of these uh, categories. For an executive, the primary job duties should involve directing the management of the organization or a major component or function of the organization. Uh, this individual should be really heavily involved in establishing the goals and policies of the organization component or function, uh, exercise a wide latitude uh, in discretionary decision-making, um, and, and exercise extensive control over the company's finances. This can be uh, really helpful to demonstrate their executive role within the company. Um, this individual, you should also be able to demonstrate that they act under little supervision or direction from higher-level executives, board of directors, or stockholders. So, so very it's like somebody hiring, firing, making important decisions exactly. for their particular team or department. Exactly. Well, that makes sense. It's how we understand the term of executive in the big sort of sense in terms of management roles. And Joel, what type of job duties are considered managerial in nature? Well, we, we understand a lot of companies may not have a, a bright line distinction between an executive and a manager, but the way the government generally views this is that the man manager's primary job, job duties should include things like managing the organization or department, a subdivision, uh, perhaps a function even within the company. Um, they also want to see a lot of times supervising and controlling the work of other supervisory or professional or managerial employees. Um, you also can qualify if you manage an essential function within the organization or department or a subdivision. However, I would we generally would recommend caution in that regard because it's oftentimes hard to prove that the employee manages an essential function because you have to show that the beneficiary is managing it and not really performing the function. And that, that can be a uh, difficult task to, to uh, achieve. As we often find with new company startups or smaller businesses or small companies where the immediate presumption is, hey, you're not really doing high-level managerial stuff, but you're doing a lot of the basic grunt work, so we're going to deny this case. Alyssa? Right. Well, exactly what Joel was saying. You want to show that they are overseeing and directing uh, other professional employees. And part of this is demonstrating the ability, as you said earlier, hiring, firing, recommending personnel actions, promotions, leaves, etc. Um, and if that is not available, you are in the position where you have to demonstrate that more challenging criteria of showing that the employee functions at a senior level within the organizational hierarchy or with respect to the function managed. But again, a much harder uh, criteria to establish. Okay. And what about if the person exercises day-to-day -day operations? Uh, yeah, if, they, if, they, if they're controlling the day-to-day -day operations of the activity or the function, um, that can show managerial capacity. One uh, other word of caution is if you're a first-line supervisor, then the government generally wants to see that the employees that you are supervising are professionals, meaning that it's a position that requires a, uh, usually it requires a degree. If you're just managing, say, a sales force, a few sales personnel, and you're the, what would be considered a frontline supervisor, um, the government may be less likely to, to approve such a case. Well, that makes sense. I know most smaller companies have this problem on a routine basis. Uh, what about the L1B classification, Alyssa? What type of skills or knowledge must the individual possess in order to be considered specialized knowledge? Right. In the Immigration Nationality Act, uh, an employee may be considered a specialized knowledge employee, quote, uh, if the alien has a special knowledge of the company product and its application in international markets or has an advanced level of knowledge of processes and procedures of the company. So there's really two ways to qualify there. However, 
neither one of them are as clearly uh, enumerated or or explained with such specifics as executive or managerial. So it's much more broad and and loose. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, there there was actually a a district court that noted that uh, specialized knowledge is a relative and empty idea which cannot have a plain meaning. So they're basically admitting that specialized knowledge by itself doesn't really mean anything. Uh, But fortunately, we do have certain memos and statements made by the government, um, other correspondents, and we've gotten at least a general idea of what they are looking for. And also through just our years of practice, we've we've kind of gotten a very good feel for uh, what cases are approvable and what the government wants to see. Um, So some of the criteria we, we, we know the government is looking for is that the employee should possess knowledge that is valuable to the employer's competitive in the marketplace. Um, you can show that the employee should be uniquely qualified to contribute to the U.S. employer's knowledge of foreign operating conditions. Uh, th- that's the reason you want to transfer them over. The employee should not have, I'm sorry, should have been utilized as a key employee abroad and has been given significant assignments which have enhanced the employer's productivity, competitive, competitiveness, uh, financial position. Um, also, the employee should ha- have knowledge that can be gained only through extensive prior experience with that employer. And again, we see a lot of these problems where the USCIS, particularly more so at the consulates, uh, will end up denying a lot of L1 visas, L1B visas for specialized knowledge workers saying you haven't been there long enough, even though they might qualify for the one year time abroad or that they don't do high level work or they're not a key employee. There are some a lot of the points that Joel just explained. Um, For example, we found some useful tips for specialized knowledge include the fact uh, that even though the knowledge does not have to be proprietary, possessing significant proprietary knowledge may in and of itself be sufficient to meet this requirement. Also, the knowledge does not have to be exclusively held by a particular person or a single individual. However, if the knowledge is extremely widespread throughout the organization or company, then most likely, whether it's USCIS in the US or the consular office or abroad, then it would not be considered a specialized knowledge. <laughs> As has been said, if everybody is special, then unfortunately nobody is special. No, exactly. There's, you know, ultimately a, a whole variety of ways to show that somebody meets this criteria, which is why it really is important to discuss the case thoroughly in advance and and identify, you know, if you have a strong case to move forward. And like Joel said, you know, we do handle a lot of these, so it's something we've become quite adept at, at identifying. It's also important to note that an employee may be considered a specialized knowledge employee if he or she possesses an advanced level of knowledge in the company's processes and procedures. Uh, this generally would not include employees who simply have the type of advanced knowledge one would expect um, in a particular field just having come out of university with a degree. Uh, This really is a situation where you have to establish the employee and distinguish them as possessing an advanced level of knowledge um, distinguished from others in the field. Okay, and sort of moving on to more procedural issues, Joel, are there certain kinds of documents or information that the employer should include with a petition to increase chances for the L1 approvals? Yeah, absolutely. Um, As Alyssa mentioned earlier, we want to provide evidence of the qualifying relationship between the foreign employer and the U.S. petitioner. Um, For example, stock certificates, minutes of meetings, anything to show that they have that that qualifying legal relationship. Um, We also recommend that you include financial documents such as tax tax returns, audited financial statements, things along those lines. 
Uh, they should definitely provide evidence that the employee has worked with a foreign company for at least one year abroad. You can do that in the form of pay stubs and individual's tax returns. You should also provide a copy of the individual individual CV or resume. Um, th those are very th those are very key documents that you definitely want to include in the petition. And then you know, on building on top of these documents, which would be required for either L1B or one or for L1A, you're going to get a little more specific to establish each criteria, whether or not the person has the specialized knowledge, is a manager or is an executive. And for managerial and executive employees, one very key document to have is a detailed organizational chart to show not only who the person reports to, but who's also reporting to them. Um, and this may be helpful for specialized knowledge as well, but very key for managers and executives. Um, for specialized knowledge employees or for employees with advanced knowledge of the internal company's processes, uh, you want to show how that individual's skills are truly specialized or advanced and how they're set apart. And this is a little harder to pin down, and it really does depend on the specific case. Um, you could potentially show proprietary knowledge of proprietary technologies, if there's internal training that's exclusive to that particular employee or a small group, um, if that particular employee has been involved in developing proprietary technologies or products, you want to show perhaps that they have drafted technical documents or been key in, in developing certain internal um, proprietary you know, applications, software, et cetera, which would inherently not be available to anybody outside that organization. Wonderful. Thank you, Alyssa. Well, I know most of us are fairly familiar with the H-1B non-immigrant classification, so I think it would be worth for us to discuss briefly the differences, the distinction, the comparison between the H-1 and the L-1 process. For instance, can an employee ordinarily remain in H-1B status for the maximum of six years? Uh, what are the time frame restrictions on L-1s? And, you know, what are any other issues that might make sense to kind of touch upon, Joel? Right, right Sheila. So, you know, as everyone or most of our listeners probably aware that the H-1B has that, that limit of six years, um, the L-1 has something similar. The L-1A, if you're entering an, uh, as an L-1A manager or executive, you can stay for a maximum of seven years. The L-1B is a little bit more restrictive. You could stay up for a maximum of five years. And usually when you're first admitted, um, if you receive the, after an approved petition, you receive your visa, you're generally admitted for three years, whether you're L-1B or L-1A. And after that, you can file to extend in two-year increments. Um, however, unlike the H-1B employees, if you're in L-1 status, you cannot extend beyond your five or seven-year uh, limitation based on a pending green card application. Rather, you would, to be eligible for a new five or seven years, you would have to return to the employer abroad, work again in a managerial or, or specialized knowledge or executive capacity for a year, and then return. Uh, so a lot of our, our employees that are here on L1s may want to consider switching to H-1B if they're eligible, if they have that pending green card application. And keep in mind that any periods of time in the U.S. an H-1B status is counted against your time in L-1 status and vice versa. And also any time in L-1B status counts against your time in L-1A status and vice versa. 
Right, right. And so I think it's very important to have, as you said, plan, discuss with the attorney well in advance. Don't wait till the last minute because there are very strict time frames that we'll touch upon, you know, at what time we need to do it. So the question, I guess, that we get asked often is that if the company has an employee who entered the U.S. on the L1, B, and then the employee is approaching close to the five-year limit, it's been, whatever, four plus years, four and a half years, the company now wishes to promote the employee to a managerial position and extend the employee status within the U.S. and on the, from switching them from L1B to L1A. Uh, what are the issues that one should keep in mind um, when the employer has to deal with these issues, Liz? Right. Well, it is important. They are going to have to file uh, a, an L1 petition with with the USCIS to notify of this, notify them of this material and substantial change in duties. And obviously the, the major benefit is getting that additional two years and this is where the timing is very important um, because the petition must be approved and the employee must then work in the managerial or executive capacity for at least six months before the end of those five years in order to be eligible for the additional two years that would normally be granted to an L1A. So don't do this at the very end of your five years. You're not going to have enough time and you're not going to get the two years. Right. So ideally, you wanted to really start looking at it at the end of the third year or the fourth year at the latest. Okay. So if the employer does not plan ahead and file the appropriate petition sufficiently in advance, the employee would end up being limited to the five-year time limit even though the person is now presumably working in the L1A managerial or executive position. And another issue that we routinely have seen in our practice involves employers who wish to place an employee at an off-site work location, the consulting company kind of model, but in the L1A, L1B context. Um, and usually the employers are filling H, uh, they're filing H1 petitions for such employees. Some of them are also aware that this type of employment is very strictly reviewed and viewed by both USCIS and the consulates. So can you explain, Joel, maybe how this offsite employment is handled by the government in the context of L1s? Absolutely. And uh, a lot of our listeners were, this is a huge issue in immigration law right now. And we're, we're dealing with it really literally every single day. We have clients that we are uh, we're trying to overcome this issue. And we've had a great deal of success. In the L-1B context, what they're looking for are transferees who are, are, you know, obviously if you're working at the petitioner site, you shouldn't have any problem with that regard. But if you're going to be stationing someone off-site, uh, two of the big factors are going to be whether the, the employer, the petitioner, I mean, has control over that employee, whether they're supervising that employee, because if the off-site uh, contractor or the you know the end client however you want to to phrase it is really doing the supervision then the government is likely to deny it another issue to look for that the government very strictly looks for is whether or not this appears to be that the company is just kind of setting up trying to find laborers you know workers for that that end client and if you're just really coming to work for the non-petitioning company then the government is likely to deny that petition because the whole idea is to help the company in the business with proprietary knowledge, unique knowledge, something that makes you stand out, senior level, not just some, again, sort of in their mind, some low-level grant employee. 
so I guess similar to H1 petitions and the January 8, 2010 memo that we keep referring to often in the H1 context, similar issue arises with respect to the petitioner's right of control over the employee, particularly when the employee is not stationed or based at the employer's L1 employer's headquarters or L1 employer's office. What are the, some of the other differences between the L1 and the H1 categories, maybe, Alyssa? Yeah. Two other main differences, uh, which our listeners may already be aware of, is that there are no LCAs required for L1s, um, which, first of all, makes it faster because you don't have to go through the Department of Labor certification. Um, but it, it also can be an issue because while it's not a criteria to meet a prevailing wage, it can be a factor that USCIS looks at to evaluate, is this a wage that's appropriate for a specialized knowledge employee or a managerial or executive? So it's something that can be a help or something to be aware of. Um, another advantage of it is that there is no annual quota. You can, you're not, you don't have to worry about an April 1st filing or an October 1st start, and there's no 65000 number cap on that. I mean, that's like a huge mm-hmm. benefit for a lot of companies to consider because obviously when the quota is met, then you're saying, oops, I have to wait another almost a year or sometimes a little over a year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and, with L- and with mm-hmm. L1s, they should be that important that you need them there in order for your business to keep going. And if you have to wait six seven months for for that person, it could be a real disruption for the company. Sure, sure. Um, And what are the rules in terms of bringing in family members into the U.S. on L1 status? So the spouse and the unmarried minor children can apply for the L2, which is the dependent visa. Um, We do know that there's been some talk about perhaps allowing um, H4s to apply for employment authorization, but right now there is no rule allowing for such. We don't know if there's going to be a rule. However, for the L-2, one of the big benefits is that the spouse is allowed to work once they obtain the employment authorization document, the EAD. Uh, There is a little bit of a gray area about whether or not the EAD is required, but we always recommend that our clients get the EAD on the L-2 because USCIS does take the position that the EAD is absolutely required. Okay. Um, Also, I think many of us who are familiar with the L-1 Uh, issues, both L1As and L1Bs, we understand and know that there are special rules which apply to a company that has, that is considered a new office in the U.S., meaning it's been in existence for less than one year, because um, if the organization has been doing business in the U.S. for less than a year, then the certain special rules apply, which is namely that we need to show that the U.S. company has sufficient physical premises to house the new office, that this includes a lease and floor plans showing size of the office and space in the petition and certain other requirements that uh, I will have maybe Alyssa explain what it is for L1A managers and um, maybe L1s. Right, exactly. Well, um, these are additional specific requirements apart from what we've already discussed. Um, For the new office, for an L1A, for manager or executive, that beneficiary must have had that one year of work experience in the managerial or executive capacity. Specialized knowledge will not not qualify for an L1A, for a new office petition. Uh, And then, in addition, you have to be able to demonstrate that the company in the U.S. will be able to support an executive or managerial position within one year of the approval. They understand that if the company's getting off the ground, there may be some more hands-on work at first for that manager, but ultimately by the end of the year, they should be relieved from these non-qualifying duties. Okay. And uh, that's absolutely right. And uh, kind of highlighting what Alyssa said, 
since they're giving you that kind of that discretion, the government's giving you a bit of discretion, they're giving you a bit of leeway in approving the L1, they only grant you generally one year at first instead of the usual three years. And then after that one year period, they require you to file the extension. They want to kind of see that you have accomplished what you said you were going to accomplish in that new office petition. Perhaps you submitted a business plan or you said, you know, a year from now we plan to have five extra employees that the manager is going to be supervising. So if you're uh, if you are transferred as a manager, uh, again, you're only going to usually get one year rather than that three year period. And then after that initial uh, admission, you're going to want to show them that your business has grown sufficiently that you deserve to be granted that extension. And it, to be really clear, you really can't wait actually the full one year because it'll expire mm -hmm. within a year, which really means that in most cases you really have a little over six months because you're able to file the extension six months uh, when there's still six months remaining. So somewhere between six months and a year, which for most companies or businesses that are starting off, it can be a very steep uphill climb for smaller companies that are trying to be very creative and use the L1 option to try and circumvent the cap and the prevailing wage and many of the other H1 issues that we just discussed in today's call. Um, I also think it's very important for us to briefly touch upon L1 blankets because it's something that a lot of larger companies are eligible for, but as your company grows from a small company to a large company, it's very useful to be aware of the blanket process, to look at the criteria and the eligibility and to determine you know, whether it's something worth pursuing with your law firm because it can save time and money in bringing valuable employees over. So, Alyssa, do you want to just sort of briefly go over it and maybe, Joel, you can add a little bit? Absolutely. absolutely. The larger international companies who qualify and obtain an L-1 blanket approval um, will be able to send employees directly to the U.S. consulate in their home country to apply for the L-1 visa without going through the USCIS petition process beforehand. Um, now, in order to obtain that blanket approval, the, the petitioner must show that it has an office in the U.S. and has been doing business in the U.S. for at least one year, uh, that they have at least three domestic and foreign branches, subsidiaries, or affiliates which are engaged in commercial trade or services, and third, that that U.S. company petitioner can show combined U.S. annual sales of $25 million or a U.S. workforce or of at least 1,000, or that the company has received approval of at least 10 L petitions in the last 12 months. Right. So it's not easy. So it's a fairly high standard, meant mainly for larger companies. Go ahead. Yeah, l the medium to larger companies that are that are going this route, um, it can be a big benefit. And you can do executive managers, specialized knowledge employees. They all can qualify to apply for the L1 through the blanket. One difference that does sometimes come up between the blanket and the individual petition, though, is that if you have an employee that perhaps is very specialized, but isn't in a position that usually requires a degree, and that, that some, sometimes does occur, in that situation, you cannot apply through the blanket because the government is, has issued a regulation saying that if you're not in a quote-unquote professional position, again, one that usually requires a degree, you have to file through the individual position rather than the company's blanket. Okay. So now that we've gone over the L1 non-immigrant visa category, uh, we can discuss briefly about the immigrant visa counterpart for the multinational executives and managers. Um, so we're talking about the EB1C, which is the fast track for getting the green card. It's The criteria, by the way, is very similar to what Alyssa and Joel just explained, uh, similar to the L1A criteria, 
But instead of being a temporary status for three years plus two plus two, which is the seven years, here you actually get permanent resident or immigrant visa green card holder, basically, you're filing for this key senior executive manager to become a permanent employee of the company must be, and the person must be employed abroad for the qualifying organization, which is that relationship that Alyssa initially talked about for the one year within the past three years, or one year within three years before entering the U.S. to work for the organization as a non-immigrant in a managerial capacity. And it's important to note that employment abroad in a specialized knowledge capacity will not be sufficient, meaning you must have worked as an executive or manager abroad. And coming to the U.S. Uh, or filing an adjustment of status to continue to remain in the U.S. and to work in that permanent position as a manager or executive. And what are the, uh, some of the advantages, Joel? Well, it, there are definite advantages for this EB1C, the, the multinational executive, uh, over the PERM process because, first of all, obviously you don't have to go through that PERM process. Um, another huge advantage for a lot of our clients is that at least for the last several years, the EB1, uh, the EB1 category has been current. And even in the rare cases where there's been a wait a uh, number of years ago, the wait has been very short, much shorter. You know, it's usually we're talking about months instead of years, as you are for the EB2 and EB3 categories. Um, and again, there's no labor market check. There's no examination of prevailing wages. So you don't really have the Department of Labor involved in that regard. Um, and but keep do keep in mind one issue that does come up frequently is that the company does has to have to demonstrate they have the ability to pay from the point that they filed the petition they have to have the show the ability to pay the wage that's offered okay uh, you know again we need to stress that we're very sensitive to the time considerations because we realize you're in the middle of your day and we always try to keep them within these sessions within 30 to 45 minutes um, I think you've clearly seen the breadth and level of issues that are raised that this is extremely complex with nuances and you need to have very smart, sharp, knowledgeable, and experienced lawyers, which certainly we at the Multi Law Firm believe we have an incredibly smart team here that can guide, help, and assist you, consult with you, and prepare whether it's a blanket petition or individual petitions for your key employees. Um, and we've had tons of experience in dealing with many issues, both the routine, regular kind, and in terms of more complex issues. Um, Many, uh, we've seen, for example, many companies uh, who are U.S.-based companies sometimes set up a foreign branch or subsidiary outside the United States, send a key-valued employee there to work for a year and then bring them back into the U.S. Again, you know, you can sit down, discuss with your lawyers, strategize what makes sense for you, your business, whether you are the founder, the company founder, or whether you are a HR manager or a senior executive manager with a very large multinational corporation with branches and offices around the world. Again, thank you so much for sharing your time. We certainly look forward to continuing to help and guide you with our superb Murthy Law Firm team and have a wonderful rest of the day.